a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. I am very happy to have James R. Harrigan back with me today. Uh, James, good to catch up with you once again. Oh, good to be back, Brian. How you doing? I'm doing well, and, and I'm anxious to talk to you. For those who don't know... Um, Jim's a, a political scientist and, and a rather accomplished one at that. And uh, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this has to be one of the most interesting times for someone who thinks like you do and who understands things the way that you do. Um, 2016 was a pretty interesting election year. Uh, Jim, does it even hold a candle to 2020? 2016 was such a disaster that I, I still remember it with a touch of fear. And yeah, it's, it's so much worse this time. It's not even funny. Okay. So much worse. Tell me what you see as uh, what what are the major differences if you're going to contrast and compare the two? Because I remember 2016 and thinking, holy cow, this even a circus would look at this with its jaw hanging open. Um, I, I don't even know where to begin with 2020. Do, what are the, the the fundamental differences between the two in terms of decisions before the voters? Right. And, and that's always a difficult question. Right. But I think we can make a dent in it at the very least. We won't be exhausted, but we can make a dent. And I think the, the first thing that we've got now that we didn't have then is more or less four years worth of a Trump presidency to analyze. And I have seen very few presidencies that are observed by people from different perspectives who aren't seeing the same thing. Right. So I think you've got the populists on the right who understand Trump in one way, and it's very clear that they're on board and they see him doing no wrong. And then there's the the liberals, for lack of a better term, on the other side, maybe progressives would be better. But this universe of people who look at him and see that all he does is fundamentally mistaken. Um, where I sit in the rational middle ground between these two groups, the liberals have it mostly right. Most of what Trump does is actually quite horrific. Um, I think it's causing us a lot of trouble that it will take us decades to bail out of on the back end of this. But I think that's about where we sit. Now, if we look at the Democrats, I think we, we have that same kind of thing happening. You know, the true believers there are thrilled that Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris. They're just thrilled. Um, so much so that they're scrubbing their history. And I, I refer to Sean King here. Um, Sean King earlier, a, a liberal pundit, said he's 99 percent certain that he could never support either Kamala Harris or Joe Biden. But the minute that became the ticket, he deleted all those old messages and started pushing out. And this is how you can tell that there's really not um, a principled ground upon which people are standing. And I think that's exactly true of, of the, the Trump devotees as well. They love him personally. It doesn't matter what he does. And that's a very strange place to be in a self-governing republic. We're looking at cults of personality on both sides, and it almost doesn't matter what they're going to do when they attempt to rule. And I shouldn't even use that word in a self-governing republic. Rulership should not happen. 
and we all know better than that now. We're, we're looking at two groups of people who want to rule and who will do so if elected and who will do so with impunity. And it gets worse every time out. And, and that's about where we stand right now. And I find it to be somewhat terrifying. That is scary. And, and I have to ask from the voters standpoint, is it pragmatism that drives that uh, that support like Sean King or, you know, the, the Trump base? I understand what you're saying. There are people who believe he he walks on water and teaches crippled children to walk in his spare time. Um, but is it is it pragmatism? Well, this is working or is it just blind faith that they're following? I think it's worse than both of those things. I think people are trying to somehow latch on to the train as it goes through the station. Uh, this is, I think, especially true of Sean King. But in the Trump Twitterverse, you see it all the time as well. Um, people seem to have perceived national politics in the United States as a team sport. And you're either on Team Blue or Team Red. And if you're on Team Red, everybody on Team Blue is terrible and stupid and misguided. And if you're on Team Blue, well, same damn thing in the other direction. And I'm here to tell you that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. And everybody with a rational bone in his body knows as much, right? Because nothing is without nuance, there's all kinds of policies out there. And if you can explain a policy perspective in 45 seconds, you don't understand the policy. Or at least you don't understand it well enough, right? Because there are nuances to all these things. And when people line up behind a, a candidate and decide that no matter what he says, it's definitionally correct, they're all crazy. And crazy politics emerges. And look what we've got. From 2016, it actually got worse. Yes. <laughs> and now, in 2016, if you told me that was going to happen, I'd have called you crazy. Because how on earth could it have gotten worse? But lo and behold, here we are. No, I remember the tribalism of 2016 and feeling almost a sense of relief. I didn't vote for Trump and I didn't vote for Hillary. But I, when it was over, I was like, okay, it's over. I'm glad she's not in. You know, let's see what he can do. And at least we can settle down and, and you know, have some semblance of normality return. No, no, it, it went off the rails and it's it's been going off ever since. As far as the tribalism goes, um, give me your best prognostication. Uh, I mean, come come the day after the election this November, half the country is going to be up in arms no matter who wins. Yeah. That's right. Um, I don't see a way that doesn't happen. I don't see a way it doesn't yield poor outcomes. Right. I think we're going to have a problem here. And I have to admit, I'm actually not that good at predicting election results. Matter of fact, I'm wrong a lot more often than I'm right. So take everything I say here with a grain of salt. But it's very difficult for me to imagine how Trump gets reelected. Right. Um, remember back when Bill Clinton was the candidate and, and everybody on his campaign staff said exactly the same thing every day in lockstep. It's the economy stupid. And I'm here to tell you more often than not, it's the economy stupid. And right now the economy is in tatters. And it doesn't really matter whose fault that is. And I think you can make a good case that you can lay a lot of this at Trump's feet. I think you can make a, maybe a little better case that you can lay all of this at the governor's feet. Right. So it doesn't matter whose fault it is. It matters what the reality on the ground is. And when people are hurting financially, they tend to look at partisan change and they think that's not such a bad thing. I get that. 
I don't know how wise it is at the end of the day. I, I think that may be just one of those things that people do in self-governing republics. It might be for, not for the best. But I do think if our economy doesn't pick up in some monumental way prior to Election Day, and I don't think it can, I suspect he's out of a job. And I suspect he knows that, which is why he's drifting back and forth looking for a plan right now that he can latch onto. Let me throw an idea past you, and, and you can you can shoot this down or, or tell me if it has any merit. I've heard some say that uh, you know if Trump really wanted to to pull some of the people from the uh, the undecided middle or at least some of the less committed voters, first thing he would do is he would have the um, the FDA or the DEA reclassify cannabis away from being a Schedule One drug and take the wind out of Kamala Harris's sales as well as uh, Joe Biden's sales by appealing to all those people who've been out there lobbying for cannabis reform. Yeah, I, th- I think that's more or less the best winning plan he could have right now. And he would have to do it before the election so he can point to it and say, look, I did it with this. We're going to look at the other things we can do it with. Right? We're, we're no longer interested in imprisoning more of our own citizens than any other country in the world. I mean, think about that. The United States of America imprisons more of its own citizens than Iran. Wow. Than North, than North Korea, right? Think, think about what this really means. And that's per, that's per capita. That's not raw numbers. We imprison at a higher rate. And one of the things that we've been locking people up for for quite some time are minor league victimless drug crimes. And why? I mean, just why? When you, when you finally realize that people use marijuana because they like it and they're going to do it regardless of what you do to them, maybe it's time to reevaluate what you do to them. No, I, I completely agree. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking with James R. Harrigan. He is one of the co-hosts of the Words and Numbers podcast, which I'm just going to throw a shameless plug your way, James. Uh, it's it's a reality supplement more people need to add to their intellectual diet. Uh, there's a lot of shouting, a lot of bumper sticker slogans flying back and forth out there. Your podcast is not one of those types of, uh, of uh, shows. It is not. Thank you for, for taking that approach with it. We actually try to be quite reasonable with our analysis, and we try to be charitable and kind. And you don't get enough of that, I think. So go find us at Words and Numbers. That's Words and spelled out numbers.org and that'll point you right to the rest of the episodes we'll be back right after this this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show Welcome back to the show. My guest is James R. Harrigan. He is the co-host, along with Anthony Davies, of the Words and Numbers podcast. He's also a professor of political science. And let's see, you direct, uh, is it the Freedom Center? Actually, I am not a professor of political science oh, right not. this second. I am the managing director of the Center for the, Phil- for the Philosophy of Freedom at the University of Arizona. Okay. I knew is you it, had a lot of important a mo- titles, but I get them all yeah. jumbled up in, in my head. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Me too. It, it's hard to tell where one ends and the other begins. I, I also work as the F.A. Hayek Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. And who knows where else? I'm probably forgetting two or three things. 
And that that too is a, is a fine organization. That's probably where where I first uh, encountered you and and your work. Um, I and I I don't count myself as an economist. I understand, like uh, I think uh, Hazlitt explained. You know, the, the economics in one lesson. You want to be a better thinker. You want to have make wiser decisions. You got to learn to think like an economist and think beyond just what's the immediate perceived result and consider some of the uh, outlying results and unintended things, but. Um, I really try to understand the world as it's going on around us. And, Jim, one of the things that just concerns me to no end right now is what's happening to small businesses in America as a result of these mandated shutdowns. I've heard, you know, thousands have gone out of business or are likely to go out of business. But I don't think we've really seen the, the true impact start to kick in yet, have we? No, we haven't. And it's going to be dreadful. Um, we're well into the tens of thousands at this point. And, you know, they all fly below the radar. People don't naturally think about small business when they think about the American economy. But here's the kicker, right? Um, Small business employs more Americans than big business does. And there are some, you know, definitional questions here. What constitutes small business? What constitutes a large one? But by any objective, rational standard, the vast majority of Americans are actually employed in small business endeavors, not large. And... When you see how tenuous the position of small business tends to be, right? Most of them aren't making a a big margin. They're not taking in millions of dollars in profits. These are people who are, generally speaking, just getting by and getting by with a reasonable salary for themselves. And what do you do when the rug gets pulled out from under that? Because they're so different. There's a disparity between them. They're... They're, they're so radically different that it would be impossible to have one policy that could cover all of them. That's just not going to happen. That's magic wand thinking. Uh, and a lot of people engage in magic wand thinking when they try to think about what government can accomplish. But there is no government official that can walk in, wave a magic wand and save all these businesses. Right They're, they're going and they're gone at, at this point. And that's a reality we're going to have to live with. Well, and the sad thing to me is for many of these businesses, and I'll just I'll focus primarily here in my home state of Utah. There are a lot of these businesses that are facing hardship, not because of anything they did wrong, but simply because someone and I'm looking at the governor's office and the lieutenant governor's office determined you're not essential. Oh, but you are. They picked winners and losers and told people, "Okay, you can't be open or if you are open, you can only have no more than 10 people or this percentage of your business at one time, um, thinking that that was doing the right thing. But but what it really did was just started a slow, painful death. Right. And you start to see the arbitrariness with which the governors acted. Right. Then you mentioned it perfectly here. You say, well, you're essential and you're not essential. This was what governors were doing. But every business is essential to the people who draw their livelihood from it. And we missed that entirely. And it's, again, this magic wand thinking that, okay, let's just keep open the big grocery stores and we can shut down everything else. It will be fine. And then what happened? We couldn't get meat to market anymore because all kinds of non-essential businesses turned out to be very essential from the from the slaughterhouse to the packaging, right down to the tape that was used to secure the bundles as they went out for delivery. Um, the, the, the styrofoam containers that disappeared because they were all non-essential. Well, 
um, you you can't just wave your magic wand at it. There's the seen and the unseen, right? These are the this is the language that the economists like to use. And boy, did we miss the unseen something awful, just something awful. And it's all fun and games when you, when we can talk about it. But let's remember that these were people these were people's livelihoods. This is how they paid their mortgage, how they put food on the table, and we walked in and yanked it right out from under them, and I'm not sure that they're ever going to come back from it. Yeah, it's it's beyond tragic. And there's something else, there's there's an element here that I really don't understand that started long before, you know, the COVID-19 threat, and that is, why is it that some people have the impression, well, these business owners, you know, they're just in it to make money. And therefore, I mean, so they're exploiting the workers kind of talk. That's why we need a $15 minimum wage and so forth. I, I think that's that's got to be a person who's never operated a small business in their life. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and the thing that comes back to me every time I hear these arguments is that people misunderstand how businesses even work. They don't understand the profit margins of most businesses. If you did a random sample in a poll and said, what do you think business is clear? What do you think the profit is? Most people come in at like 30 and 40%, which is so ridiculous, you can barely even think it through. The average number is, is more like 5 to 6%. In some, in some industries, it's 2 or 3 That's what people make over and above their expenses. Um, and it, if, if you look at that, you say, you say something like, look, these people are bleeding us dry. You've got a very odd definition of bleeding us dry, right? They're providing a service that you can either accept or reject. It's just there for you to use or not use. And to the extent that you choose to use it, you've given your permission, right? That's, that's permission to make a living, making your fellow man happy enough that he'll come in use your services, and then leave. And look, I do it every day, right? There's grocery stores here in town. I walk in. They make about a, a point and a half to three points on, on their profit margin. Profit margins are razor thin in grocery stores. So when I shop in one, I don't walk in saying, look at these horrible capitalists. I, I say, well, look at these people who are taking a monstrous chance with their, their livelihood, who are bringing me products from all over the world that I can have at a very reasonable price, and I can walk out and we're all better off. I'm better off because I got something that was worth more than the money I bought to me. They're better off because they got more money than they paid for the products they sold me. And don't you know, that's the, that's the hallmark of success in a market-based economy. And when you start looking around and politicians say, well, yeah, but not you, or worse yet, <laughs> this company, and, and Solyndra comes to mind pretty quickly with Barack Obama's presidency, he picked a green company because that was politically the smart move. And then Solyndra bilked the American people out of a lot of money, not subject to market forces, right? Market forces decide winners and losers fairly. And small business fits right into that. And the more we trample on it, the worse off we are. And it would do everybody well to reconsider their hostility to the, the types of business that employ more Americans than any other type of business. Now, that makes sense. Uh, Jim, we've got about a minute left here. Um, give me some recommendations for people who want to get their minds around the basics of economics without having to go get an advanced degree. What's some reading material that will help them 
grasp what you're talking about here. Yeah, and, and there's always just a few that do pretty well. You can you can look up Henry Hazlitt. That's always nice. Milton Friedman did a series of videos called Free to Choose that are just outstanding. Right, You can watch Milton talk, and, and he nails things down in these three- and five-minute chunks that are just beautiful. So if you want to learn basic econ, well, go to, no, go to the Nobel Prize. No, no, cut that. Cut that. Go to Milton Friedman, and, and you're in pretty good shape right from the start. Okay. I'll have more recommendations next time I come by. Okay, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Again, we're talking with James R. Harrigan. He is one of the hosts of the Words and Numbers podcast, and I appreciate him letting me pick his ample brain here on The Brian Hyde Show. We're going to pay a couple of bills, and we'll be back shortly. Jim, I look forward to our next conversation. As do I. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. And a quick shout-out and thanks to our sponsor, Firesteel.com. My friend uh, Carl told me uh, just yesterday that he had purchased his uh, Gob Spark, which I'm very happy. I told him, it's okay, this is good. You and I need to get together and go start fires. I know that sounds a lot more sinister than, than uh, it, it really is. But it's a fascinating process to use a flint and steel to start a fire. And it's a very good survival skill to boot. Now, Carl told me that uh, he had dropped my name at the uh, checkout, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N. Put that in as the coupon code. It saves you 10% on your purchase. I'm going to actually put up a video. I want you to keep an eye on our Facebook page, the Brian Hyde Show Facebook page. I'll, I'll put a Facebook Live video up and just show you so you can see for yourself how simple it is to strike a real honest-to-goodness spark. I mean, it's not like you can weld with it, but you can certainly get a fire going even in an emergency situation. You can see all the cool products for yourself and probably will say, yeah, I should probably have something like that in my ready kit. That's firesteel.com. Give Ron and Ilma a a quick look up on the web and then get on there and order one or two or three for yourself and your family, the people who matter most. So looking at 2020, I saw somebody had made the suggestion, hey, maybe we should actually just uh, use the phrase 2020 as uh, as profanity, you know, like as in as in what a load of 2020 that was. But we definitely live in interesting times. And I'll admit, sometimes I don't know whether or not to to feel hope or whether to feel despair. I mean, on the one hand, I want to be a realist. On the other hand, I'm looking for the positive things. And even when things are falling apart like a soup sandwich, I still think there's some really great stuff happening. Kent McManigal, who is a clear, concise writer and somebody who I enjoy reading, says he's experiencing hope and despair in nearly equal parts as this year unfolds. He says, I've been observing and listening to what people around me are saying concerning recent events, and it's been interesting. He said, I've heard people say that they never thought tyranny in America was a possibility until the pandemic. Now they see how easily it could happen. He says, since the beginning of the pandemic, I've heard the laughter at preppers be replaced by show me how. And I wish I had listened. He says, I've seen people who never cared about liberty suddenly start to pay attention. I've seen more and more people getting their kids out of kinder prison. And he says, this all gives me hope. Now, the other side of the coin, 
He says, I've also seen people watching and waiting anxiously for that next stimulus check from Uncle Sam. He says, I've seen people calling the social nihilists in uh, in big cities anarchists as if that's what they were. By the way, this is a pet peeve of mine, too. <laughs> they're they're not anarchists. He says, I've seen people looking at events and stupidly saying, this is why we need police, and then emphasizing how helpless and useless they are to take care of their own lives without a master to do it for them. He says, I've seen libertarians arguing for reopening the government schools on schedule and or using the stolen money to fund other forms of schooling. And I'm going to share with you a a newspaper column of his in just a moment that, that gets to the heart of another issue. If you are starting to see prices creep up on some essential things, there's a reason for that. And he has a very concise and spot-on reason. And I got to tell you, it's, it's a little bit of a chilling one, but it's, it's worth knowing. He says that uh, that newspaper column, by the way, offended another sort of person, the kind of person who doesn't want to see anything which might disturb his dreams. And so someone had uh, taken him to task. He says he began his one run-on sentence by saying, this is his hometown. Okay. Kent says, I was born here too, but how's that relevant? And that he hasn't seen any prices go higher. Kent says, well, I have. And so has the person I mentioned in the column. And if you check gold, silver, and Bitcoin prices, you can see it right now with your own eyes. And the the reader apparently said to me, the dollar hasn't lost anything. He says, now I could show him charts, but the trick he plays is the to him. The dollar is still worth what it was to him because he believes it is. No evidence will convince him otherwise because he believes what he believes. He says, I wonder if he's ever once in his life complained about a higher price for anything because that would falsify his claim. He ended by saying God is in control and knows what's going on. And he says, I probably shouldn't have replied, but I did. I'm glad for you. I'll tell the person who started noticing higher prices in Clovis stores that you say she must be imagining it. I'll also tell the gold and silver sellers that they have to sell their products to me at last month's prices because you say prices aren't going up. I wonder what they'll say. God knowing what's going on doesn't mean God wouldn't let humans suffer for their fo- for doing foolish things. Actions have consequences. And then he asks, am I wrong? As always, there are reasons for both hope and despair. The shining examples, the mistakes in human skin, and the self-deluding. <laughs> On the economic side of things, he says, my income keeps declining due to the effects of the government-caused corona panic. So he says, if you care to sign up for a monthly subscription on any of the platforms I use, I'd appreciate it. And he has uh, links that that will allow you to do that. And by the way, I I think this is a really viable way of of doing things. If you find something that brings you uh, value, and, and, and I would say Kent McManigal is definitely one of the people who brings value. Drop five bucks here and there, you know, wherever you can. Every little bit helps. Let's talk about uh, his column here for a minute. This is just short and sweet. Stimulus may be the last nail for the dollar. He says government actions have consequences. Some people were happy with the so-called stimulus checks they got from the federal government. Most of them are excited about the prospects of getting another one. One such fan of stimulus checks was complaining to me, to me a while ago after realizing the prices on some necessary items have gone up a noticeable amount. Instead of keeping my mouth shut, I said, remember the stimulus check you were so thrilled to get a couple of months ago? You're starting to pay for it. And he says, I could have added, expect it to get worse. Now, here's a simple explanation of Inflation, the more dollars created, the less each individual dollar is worth. And when a dollar's worth less, it takes more of them to buy things. 
Look at the recent price of gold, silver, and Bitcoin. As the U.S. dollar loses value, those prices go up. It's called inflation, but people get it backwards. It doesn't mean things are getting more expensive. It means dollars are getting cheaper. They're losing their buying power. Inflation means you can get more dollars for a roll of toilet paper than before. People who are unaware of this economic fact might complain about the wrong things and blame the other victims, manufacturers, retailers, instead of the guilty party. Government will do almost anything to keep people from realizing who's to blame. And by the way, he says, don't expect the trend to be a straight line. The value of the dollar will be unstable, going up and down over the short term. Prices will rise and fall because the value of a dollar isn't the only thing affecting prices. Supply, demand, and innovation also affect what things cost. And this is why even though the dollar's value is fading, prices don't always get high, only get higher. In the long term, the dollar is doomed. In fact, he says it was probably already doomed, having lost over 96% of its value since the Federal Reserve was created back in 1913. A dollar today is worth less than four cents compared to a dollar before government policy began its destruction. The COVID-19 spending conjuring dollars out of thin air might be the final nail in the coffin. Or people may continue to tolerate a dollar worth a few cents if enough of them imagine it's worth more. He says you can't predict what people will do. I never believed anyone would tolerate having the economy shut down and being forced to wear masks. But here we are. Has anyone told you recently we are living in interesting times? So let's take a moment here and just kind of unpack what can you do in the face of uh, of the declining purchasing power of the dollar. Notice I'm using this phrase instead of just saying inflation because I don't want you to think it's just a matter of well they're hiking prices on everything. If you haven't been paying attention for the last couple of years, you probably would be surprised if you were to look at some of uh, let's let's take food for instance. When you shop at the supermarket. Have you noticed how the price may have stayed the same on that box of crackers that you've been buying for years and years? Well, I haven't seen it go up. It's still roughly the same. But have you noticed that the package itself is smaller than it was last year or even a few weeks ago? Yeah, there are ways around it. There's, I, and I don't want to make it sound like, well, it's, it's trickery and they're, they're just trying to fool us. But the point is, sometimes it takes a little more subtle form. It's not always a... It's not always like, oh, I just went to buy me a, a Wagyu uh, beef uh, brisket and, you know, had sticker shock there. But boy, if you tried to buy steaks or anything like that lately, whew, you are experiencing a little bit of sticker shock. So what can you do? Well, the simplest, the simplest solution that I know of is to make sure that you have your money in something more than simply, you know, electrons in a, in a computer somewhere or even in pieces of paper with presidents' faces on them. Convert that money into tangible goods. And that could take any number of different forms. It could You could convert it into toilet paper. You could convert it into freeze-dried foods. You could convert it into instant coffee, ammunition, gold, silver, tools. Actually, skills is not a bad thing to convert it into. The idea being, get things that hold value whether they are labeled money or not. That seems like a wise approach. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again for being part of the growing audience of wrong thinkers. And, uh, and, and thank you for reveling in wrong think. You know, it's, it's not such a radical act, is it? It's just kind of questioning that narrative and thinking outside the lines, straying from the, what Tom Woods would call the 3 by 5 index card of approved opinion. And it feels darn good. I'm very grateful for all the voices out there that are helping to to shed light on the times that we live in, the events that are going on around us, and, and of course, always championing personal liberty, private property rights, free markets, freedom of conscience, stuff that really, really matters. So uh, my biological dad and I have been staying in touch for a while. I haven't said a lot about this on the air. Um, I've been keeping this uh, fairly private. But one thing that I appreciate is he and I look at the world through a a fairly different uh, ideological lens. And, you know, this isn't a huge thing. It's not like, well, you know, we can't even talk about certain things. But when he sends me an article, I always like to read it because I know he's coming at things from a slightly different point of view than I am. And he sent me an article yesterday. This was published in Forbes. 35 Best and Worst Countries to Raise a Family. It's apparently a new study from the travel website Asher and Lyric. And I was just a little bit surprised to see the United States is the second worst place in the world to raise a family. Now, I don't think of myself as, you know, particularly jingoistic (laughs) or, you know, know, what, America, you insulting my country? I'm just not that guy, but... My knee-jerk reaction was, hey, what do you mean that, you know, we came in at a shockingly low 34th place out of 35 countries, only beating out uh, Mexico. Okay, well, at least we're better than Mexico. I know that's uh, the, the, that's one of the cries of the American nationalist. And, and by the way, Mexico apparently landed in last place on this because of the crime problems there. But listen to the best places to raise a family. Tell me if you see kind of a common pattern here. Iceland. Norway, Sweden, and Finland, which, by the way, was recently named the happiest country in the world for the third year in a row. Now, this study has been eye-opening for me, says Los Angeles-based journalist Lyric Ferguson, who sounds a little bit Nordic, does she not? (laughs) She runs the site with her husband, Asher, and uh, she's a mother of two. She says, even as a well-educated, thoughtful individual... I'd become so numb to the country's inadequacies, I must have simply disregarded my personal experience for the rhetoric of the nation. So the husband-wife journalist, known for mapping out data-driven travel lists like the most dangerous places for women to travel, the most dangerous places for gay travelers. Ah, I'm seeing the agenda start to, to come forward here. Where they created the Raising a Family Index to rank 35 countries that are part of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD. Ferguson says we only used OECD countries because they have reliable data in a wide range of key topics useful for this study. To rank the most and least family-friendly countries, the journalist looked at 30 critical statistics that, from trusted international sources broken down into six categories that identify favorable conditions for raising a family. Those include safety, happiness, cost, health, education, and time. Now, before I go any further, can I just say how many of those uh, those categories have a significant amount of government uh, oversight, regulation, or for that matter, flat out administration? Because I think you're going to find that's kind of the common theme. And, well, you know, government administers all of these things in, in the countries that they picked as the best. Government has, you know, a very high stake in your safety, your happiness, your health, your education. 
The best country in the world, they said, in raising a family is Iceland, which, by the way, was also the safest country in the world and number four when it came to cost. Sweden was the best priced country to raise a family. Iceland achieved top 10 rankings in all categories and was number one in safety. But to Iceland apparently is a leader in human rights. No matter the origins of a child or who they turn out to be, Iceland's constitution ensures they will be treated unequivocally as an equal. You know, technically, that's how it is in ours, too. That's before we started dividing up into this identitarian tribal politics sort of thing. Mexico, the article says, came in at the bottom of the list as the worst country to raise a family, ranking poorly in categories like safety. In fact, it was considered the most dangerous in the world. Health, the worst. Education, also the worst. And happiness, the fifth least happy country. But the surprise with the U.S. coming in at uh, the bottom of the list at number 34, barely above Mexico, safety apparently severely impacted the United States rankings. According to the data, it was second worst only after Mexico. I can only guess that it's because we don't have enough gun control. Just a hunch. Also, uh, we scored poorly in the human rights category, coming in at fourth worst. Now, there is some truth here. And as you heard uh, James uh, Harrigan talk about in the first segment, we imprison an awful lot of people in America. Cost is another contributing factor. And one of the shocking uh, facts that these journalists uncovered was they said American mothers are twice as likely to die in childbirth here as they would be in Canada, even though it'll cost three times as much for a standard hospital birth. And this was interesting, too. The U.S. also ranked poorly in happiness. Journalists point out that one in five Americans suffer from mental health issues each year. The suicide rate has increased by 33 percent between 1999 and 2017. By the way, it's not getting better with all the lockdown stuff, too. Oh, and also very sobering, America ranked worst for time. Now, this is what constitutes time. Zero government-mandated paid maternity paternity, sick leave, or vacation time. Government mandated. That's the key right there. No other country in our study gives zero paid maternity leave or zero paid vacation time. So apparently the the key metrics that they're looking at have a lot to do with whether or not government is, you know, the the deciding factor or the, the enforcing factor in making those things happen. Now, there's, there's some trade-offs here for sure, but I would take a little more risk and I would take a little more freedom and some of the discomfort that comes along with that <clears throat> rather than have government be in charge of everything. Yes, you may have a sense of security. And for people who are, you know, not prone to want to make their own decisions, would prefer, you know, somebody else, please carry that responsibility for me. I can see where that would be a more attractive choice. But that's not for me. And actually, to back up, you know, the the idea that we don't we're, we may not have scored well as a country in, in this particular survey, but there's a great article on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. This is from uh, Daniel J. Mitchell. Thanks to economic freedom, America still outperforms other nations in standard of living. Now, this may sound a little bit materialistic, but I'll hit you with a couple of statistics from Daniel Mitchell. And just just to point out. It's it's not the hopeless thing that uh, that we may be led to believe. He says, my view of U.S. economic policy often depends on whether I'm writing about absolute levels of laissez-faire or relative levels of laissez-faire. Now, he says, if my column is about the former, then I generally complain about the excessive spending, the punitive taxation, senseless red tape, easy money monetary policy and trade protectionism. 
But he says, if I'm writing about relative levels of economic liberty, that's when I turn into a jingoistic pro-American flag waver. And he says, that's because with few exceptions, such as Singapore, Hong Kong, New Zealand, and Switzerland, the United States enjoys more economic freedom than other nations. And by the way, he's got some great charts which illustrate this. And he says, because of the relationship between policy and prosperity, this means that Americans tend to have much higher living standards than their counterparts in other nations, even when compared to people in other developed countries. Now, he goes into some great detail. He's got a lot of good charts to back this up. You know, this, this will thrill most, uh, most of the economists among us. He says, my final observation is that all this data is contrary to what's called traditional convergence theory, which assumes that poor nations should grow faster than rich nations. In other words, Europe should be catching up to the U.S. And he said that actually happened for a couple of decades after World War II. But then many European nations expanded welfare states back in the 60s and 70s, while the U.S. Uh, for more expanded for more uh, economic freedom under both Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton in the 80s and 90s. And since policies diverged, convergence stalled. The bottom line is that rich nations can consistently outperform poor nations if they have more economic freedom. And he says not only do Americans, uh, ordinary Americans, have a big edge over their European counterparts, but we also enjoy much lower taxes. Huh, something to think about. I will say this, and this is probably just because uh, I'm not the numbers cruncher, but uh, I don't like to measure my happiness in terms of uh, economic uh, performance and policy and, you know, what's the, the standard of living. And this is probably just a function of getting older and hopefully a little bit wiser as I make my way through life. But uh, the people in my life have taken on far greater worth than the material possessions once uh, once held. Um, you know, there was a time where it was about accumulating material wealth and, you know, all the trappings to show this is what success is. I really don't feel that way so much anymore. I would settle for a lot less material wealth and a lot more quality in the relationships of the people who matter most to me. And I, I feel pretty comfortable with that. I'm not saying that you have to think that way, but that's where my heart is leading me. And I'm going to stick with it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.